Discipleship is such an important part in a church ministry. It can be a life-changing part of ministry. We have seen a lot of spiritual growth come because of our discipleship ministry. We have seen numerical growth come because of our discipleship ministry. It has been a game changer for us. And it was, uh, when we started it, we didn't know where it was going to go. We've seen just so many people helped. I want you to look in Philippians chapter 4. Look in verse 9. Philippians 4 9. Paul writes to the Philippian church, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Paul invested in them. And he lived the Christian life in front of them. And then he told them what you have learned from him. What you have received in the teaching. What you have heard with your ears. What you've seen in, in my life. Do that. And the peace of God shall be with you. It's not an arrogant statement. It's under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what it's saying is a... Uh, you, you look, you look to a, you can look to a leader that's walking with God. You can look to a discipler that's walking with God, and that will help you. As long as your discipler is walking with God, it'll help you. <clears throat> Discipleship is not only biblical; it, it it's critical in the in the Christian life. It is the commission. That Jesus left the church with. I don't know where it started, but somewhere in fundamentalism, and certainly in fundamentalism from the days that my family got saved, we we grew up with the idea that the Great Commission was soul winning. And the Great Commission is not soul winning. The Great Commission is discipleship, of which soul winning and church planning are integral parts of, but the discipleship is the bigger picture. And look at your diagram. Remember back in the days of English class when you had to diagram sentences? But does that cause fear and trepidation in you? Do, you? do you start shaking and going through withdrawals when you think of diagramming exercises in English class? Yeah, bad one. Yeah. You diagram the Great Commission in the end of the book of Matthew, and it diagrams like you have on your paper. Ye... Disciple nations. That's what the Great Commission is. Ye disciple nations. In order to do that, it involves going, and it involves baptizing, and it involves teaching. They're all modifiers to what the main verb is, and that is disciple. Ye disciple nations. So you go to, you, you, you lead someone to Christ, and you stair-step them to where they're following Jesus Christ. They can't be a follower of Christ until they get saved. So, the Great Commission of Necessity involves soul winning, evangelism, and people being born again. But discipleship is much more than that. And we are to teach the people that, that get saved whether we lead them to Christ or through our church ministry, people around us, we're to, we're to teach them all things that Jesus taught us to teach. And that's what you find throughout the Scripture. All things that He said. And He said a lot. 
And there's a lot more he said that wasn't recorded. Now, he can't teach that because it wasn't written. When, when I study the Bible, which I do regularly, I come across verses and it just leaves me wondering. You ever, does that happen to you? You read something and it just leaves you wondering. And when I get to the genealogies, so-and-so begets, so-and-so, and so-and-so begets, so-and-so, and so-and-so begets, so-and-so, and so-and-so begets, so-and-so. Or when I get to the law and all these intricate details as to how the Ark of the Covenant is made and the shape and, and, overlay, and how all the tabernacle and the temple was constructed. And I read all the detail. And then I get to the end of the Gospel of John. And John says there's many other things that Jesus both did and taught that if they were written down, the world couldn't contain the books. Now, he's using exaggeration, but he's stressing a point. There's a lot of things that Jesus did that were not recorded. But you know what was recorded? So-and-so begets so-and-so, and so-and-so begets so-and-so. Would you write the Bible like that if you were writing it? Probably not. <laughs> he would have put stuff that Jesus said and did and left out all these begats. But he put the begats in there. When you figure out why, would you please let me know? <laughs> he wants everybody to know who he knows who his, each of our daddies are, I guess. But it's there. And, and we read it all and we study it all. Discipleship is intensely personal. Now, I want you to follow me through the book of Acts a little bit. So let's go to Acts chapter 9, and you're going to follow me just a, a little bit through Acts 9. It is 6.33, and I'm done at... I am done at... <laughs> that's dangerous. <laughs> Shortly after 7, okay. Is Nick here? I'll ask Nick, when, when am I supposed to be done, Nick? <laughs> Chapter 9, Acts 9. I want you to see how relational discipleship is. Look in chapter 9, verse 26. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he assayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So Paul, Paul gets saved or Saul gets saved and the disciples, they know the Saul that threw people in jail and had people executed like Stephen. They're not trusting this Saul guy. Barnabas, though, he's aware of more what's happened in, in Saul's life. So Barnabas gets Saul. Go to chapter 11, verse 25. He's helped Saul to become accepted among the apostles. And now Barnabas is going to go get Saul and bring him to Antioch. In chapter 11, verse 25, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So Barnabas goes and gets Saul and brings him. And Saul starts having this fruitful ministry at Antioch. Look in verse 30. Uh, let's end verse. Let me get to verse. 
29. Verse 29. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dealt at Judea. There was a famine. They needed help. And so the brethren were going to help them. And verse 30, which also they did, and they sent it, which was a gift, a financial gift. They sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas has gotten Saul. They're ministering in Antioch. There's a need in Judea. And Barnabas and Saul, they take this offering to go help the, uh, the Christians there in Judea. Go to chapter 13. Chapter 13. Look in verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work wherein I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and he sent them away. And now they're starting on the missionary journey. The first missionary journey out of the church at Antioch. Chapter 13, verse 7. They've landed in Cyprus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. So now one of these leaders in this area, they want to talk. He wants to talk to Barnabas and Saul. Chapter 13, verse 13. Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John departing from there returned to Jerusalem. There's a change that takes place. Up until this time, it's been Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, and now it's Paul and his company. Paul has stepped forward. Now look in verse 43 of chapter 13. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. Here it is, Paul and Barnabas. Who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold. Verse 50. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city, and they raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them. So as you read through the first half of the book of Acts, there's this big change that takes place. It goes from Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, to Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. Paul stepped forward and became the leader, and Barnabas took a step back. But I want us to understand something. If there wasn't a Barnabas, then there wasn't a Paul. Because Barnabas was the one that mentored Paul, and then Paul, under the... The power of the Holy Spirit and the direction of God. He stepped forward. This is like the Edward Kimball and Dwight L. Moody. Edward Kimball had this little ministry, but he led Dwight L. Moody. Dwight L. Moody had a worldwide ministry. Shook two continents for God. That's what happens in a discipleship relationship. And it really doesn't matter whether we're the Paul or the Barnabas. What matters is that we're faithful. And God will use us the way God wants to use us. Why do we need a discipleship ministry? Look in your notes. Jesus made disciples and we're to follow his example. Now, we really belabored that this morning. Jesus, he chose disciples and they learned to live the Christian life by following his example. And we ought to follow Christ's example. See what he did. See what Christ did. And then let's just act like Jesus and do the things that Jesus did. B, new Christians are vulnerable and we need and they need our protection. Why are new Christians more vulnerable than older, more mature Christians? I think there's several reasons. Satan easily deceives them because they lack understanding. 
They don't know the Word of God yet. They're just starting their Christian journey. They've got a lot to learn in the Bible. And they have Scripture to memorize. And so they're just at the beginning stages. So they're more, they're just more vulnerable, easily deceived because they don't have the foundation yet. They'll get there. It's just going to take time and effort. Number two, they wrestle with doubts. And I think that's probably pretty common in the Christian life. Early on in our Christian life, we struggle with doubts about our salvation. Did God really save me? Could it really be that easy that I just believe and he saved me? Forgave me of all my sin. I just got on my knees and prayed and asked the Lord to save me. Is that all I had to do? That just sounds too simple. Easy for us, hard for God. Cost him the life of his son. Salvation was costly, but he made it simple for us. If we would believe with childlike faith, but we just we wrestle with doubts in those. Let's just get a raise of hands. If you got saved young in life and you struggled for a period of time doubting your salvation, would you raise your hand? That's the majority in here. I think. Well, I, I know I made a profession of faith when I was seven. And I got baptized and I made a profession of faith when I was nine and got baptized and I made a profession of faith when I was 15 and got baptized. I really was good for the church's baptismal statistics because I kept going to the tank over and over again. But, you know, it was because of doubting my salvation. And that's why that was happening. It's we're just vulnerable when we're young in the faith. Three. They face opposition from family, from friends and family. Opposition. People that don't understand the decision we've made. We've come to faith in Christ. People don't understand that. And so they, man, they put the pressure on. And coming from the Philadelphia area where, where we're ministering, there's a strong Roman Catholic influence in, in our area. And we've, we have a church that is filled with former Catholics. They trusted Christ as Savior. They started growing as a Christian. They ended up at our church. Many of them saved at our church. And we have family members. We have church family members who, when they got saved, their biological family said, you're not welcome at the family reunion until you return to the Catholic church. That's the pressure they put on because they don't understand the decision that their son and, and or daughter made. And so the pressure comes on. And that's uh, that's difficult for a new convert to, to face. Four, new Christians can become discouraged and give up with, without if they don't get the help. You know, the exceptionally strong ones make it. When people make a profession of faith in Christ, there are some strong people in their faith from the get-go, and they just jump in and they, they run with God. And I'd have to say, by way of testimony, I was blessed to have a mother and a father like that. When they got saved... They jumped in and they never looked back. Our life changed. Our family life changed. Our family practice changed. How we spent our week changed. Everything changed for the good when they got saved. But they hit the ground running. It wasn't a situation where they got saved and a couple years later they decided, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go to church on Sunday night. <laughs> no, they, they just hit the ground running. And... That is not as common, I've learned in the, in the ministry. It's not as common for that to happen. And having a discipleship ministry really helps people that make a profession of faith. It gets them grounded 
quicker. See, in your notes, new Christians have great potential for change and we can encourage that change. And here's why they have great potential, because they're they're new in the faith. They're going to start learning new habits and we want them to learn new good habits, not new bad habits. Children are more pliable than adults, correct? They're in their formative years and People that are new in the faith are more pliable than people that have been saved for a long time. And they've kind of eased into what Christianity is going to be for them. And it's once they're kind of set in a mold, it's kind of hard to move that. But when they first get saved and everything is new, then they're just more pliable. I took a piece of earthen clay and idly fashioned it one day. And as my fingers pressed it still, it moved and yielded to my will. I came again when days had passed. The bit of clay was hard at last. The form I gave it still it bore, and I could change that form no more. You ever take modeling clay at art class in school and you made something and it hardened? Once it was hardened, you couldn't do anything with it? I took a piece of living clay and touched it gently day by day and molded with my power and art a young child's soft and tender heart. I came again when years had gone. It was a man, a man I looked upon. That early impress still he bore, and I could change him nevermore. Just like modeling clay. It's, you mold it when it's soft, and it hardens, and it's tough to do something with. Take a new Christian. They're, they're new. They're pliable. They mold easier. And then when they set, it's hard to do any molding at that point. That's why we want, to, we want to have a discipleship ministry to take advantage of the time when people are just open to change. It's a pivotal time in their life. They're going to have a change of lifestyle, potentially, change of friends, a change of activity. There's a lot of things that's going to change. So let's mold them with a, a biblical pattern, the right putting off and putting on. D, discipleship is the most effective way of achieving spiritual multiplication. You lead somebody to Christ or you disciple somebody and then you're witnessing and they're witnessing. Now you're, you're multiplying. It works. Evangelism works best with discipleship because you get this multiplication effect. Roman numeral two. Why is discipleship so effective? You start with this, the friendship factor. You develop Friendship with the person you're discipling. People listen to their friends. People trust their friends. We all live that way. We all do that. If we're struggling with something and, and we're going to seek some counsel, you don't go to the person that hates you and then ask, what do you think I ought to do? No, you're going to go to the person that you trust that's your friend or friends and you will ask them. There's this friendship factor that develops in discipleship. B, individualized attention. Now, somebody asked a question last night in our class. How do you how do you do the discipleship? What's the dynamic, the, the numbers? And, and I said this, we, we tried everything. We tried one on one, a man with a man, a woman with a woman. We tried one on two, a man discipling a couple. We, we, we tried two on two, a couple discipling a couple. We tried one on five. A man discipling a small group, like a, like a small class. We tried one on 20. A man discipling a bigger class. We, we tried multiple ways to do discipleship. And we came back over those years. We, we came back 
firmly committed to one-on-one. A man discipling a man, a woman discipling a woman. And one of the reasons for that is individualized attention. You focus on the circumstances specifically of that Timothy that you're discipling. C, open communication. Now, as you're focusing on that individual uh, and that relationship gels, and that's the way we say it, when it gels, when it starts out, oftentimes you don't know the Timothy really, and the Timothy doesn't know you. But as you meet and meet and meet, and that relationship gels, when it gels, there's this tremendous trust factor that happens. And, and when that happens, then there's open communication. And here's the, way it, and here's the way it goes. When the relationship is gelling, the Timothy sometime will say this to you. Can I ask you a question? Now, when they say that, can I ask you a question? They are getting ready to open up their heart and share with you something that they're just not going to share with anybody. But if the relationship is gelled and they trust you and they feel this is my friend, this person will accept me. They're not going to reject me if I open up and I tell them, ask them what I'm really struggling with. And when they ask that, can I ask you a question? They're going to tell you something that... uh, is heavy on their heart, something they're struggling with. It might be an addiction. It might be a relationship problem at work. It might be a relationship problem in the home. It might be a struggle, husband and wife struggle. It might be a parent-child struggle. But whatever it is, when, they, when, it, when it, the relationship gels and they feel safe, they're going to say, may I ask you a question? And the best thing you can do is say, absolutely. You don't want to look at your watch and say, listen, we've got to get through this material here. No, no, forget the material. They're going to share with you the point of struggle in their life. They need help. And you're going to be the person that they ask. I was sitting at the dining room table one day, and the man said, this is about eight weeks we've been together. So we were on the eighth lesson. And he said to me, May I ask you a question? Sure. And here's the question. The ladies where I work dress so provocatively, I am really struggling with lust. Is there anything in the Bible that can help me? And so we went to the Scripture. I gave him some practical points. You memorize Scripture. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Fill your mind with God's word. Quote God's word. When you're in the presence of those that dress poorly from the neck up, don't don't look below. And and recite God's word in your heart. And I gave him some points of instruction and he was working on that. And there came a time when he said to me, I'm really getting victory over this. Now, when when that was over, here's what I, I thought. Where would he ever ask that question? We have a couple Sunday school classes. Can you imagine Sunday morning in Sunday school class? Husband and wife sitting there and he raises his hand. His wife's sitting right by him. 
And he says, I am lusting after the women at work. He would humiliate himself. He would humiliate his wife. Every woman in that Sunday school class would feel uncomfortable. The speaker would be, uh, 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 he wouldn't know what to do. It's not the right form. So who, who do they ask? And the answer is nobody, usually, unless you have a counseling ministry they, and they go to a council or they, they, they take the bold step to go to their pastor and ask their pastor. But I tell you, if you have a discipleship relationship and there's this close jailed relationship, they will ask questions and they will tell you what they're struggling with. And, and you become, for them, a resource person. That doesn't mean you know all the answers, but you have enough, you are safe enough that they can ask you. And then you can say to them, you give them the answer. And if you don't know the answer, you can say, I'm going to get the answer for you. And we're going to talk about this. And we'll work through this together. You get this tremendous open communication. And D, accountability. Now, that's the, that's the logical follow through. If you have this open communication and you're praying with them over things that they're struggling with, you can now come back in another session. How's it going with? And you you follow up and see if they are if they're getting victory and working on whatever the issue is that you've been discussing. And then e mutual spiritual growth. Mutual spiritual growth. And I told you this morning, when we got older Christians involved in discipling new Christians, the older Christians grew, the younger Christians grew. It's like iron sharpening iron. It was a win-win process. Everybody was better off because both the new Christian and the older Christian were both growing. When we finished the first discipleship lessons 20-some years ago, I was on my knees in my office. It was a Sunday late afternoon I must have gone there a, a, an hour before church to do something. And, and uh, I kind of put the finishing touches on the last lesson. And I said, I got on my knees. I said, God, I'm going to go down in the church foyer. And the first person I see that I don't know, I'm going to approach him. And I'm going to get to know him. And I'm going to ask him about discipleship. And so I get up from my knees. I go down the stairs. And there's a little platform you can in this, in this long flight of stairs. And I stopped. And I'm up high enough, I can look over the whole foyer and I can see everybody. And uh, through the doors walked Merle Kraft. Never seen him in my life. And I bounded down the last few stairs. I went up to, to Merle. And said, hey, I said, my name is Pastor Elstock. And, and he told me his name and we chatted there. And, and uh, I asked him about him, his salvation. He gave a little bit of a testimony. And, and I believed he was saved. And I said, you know, we have this discipleship ministry and I'd love to have you a part of it. And so I explained a little bit what I had in mind. He didn't know that he was the discipleship ministry. He was number one and there was nobody else. But but he was the beginning. And I gave him the A lesson, assurance of salvation. And the next week we met at my house at 11 o'clock at the dining room table and the some of the first words out of his mouth was, Pastor Elstock, after doing this lesson, I don't think I'm saved. And so we went through the plan of salvation. Merrill got on his knees in my dining room. And usually I lead somebody in a prayer. I'd ask him to pray after me. For some reason I didn't. But I said, why don't you pray and ask God to save you? He started crying. And it wasn't a little whimper. He was crying from deep down in his soul. It was, you could, it was almost like a grieving crying, and he prayed and asked God to save him. And that started for us 
a process of discipleship. And, and in the time that we were together in discipling, discipleship, he got saved, he got baptized, his family, his wife got saved, they joined the church, they started reading the Bible, they, they, uh, he started passing out tracts, they would sing gospel courses as a family, learning that in his, uh, in his family time. Uh, he led his first soul to Christ. All of this happened in the, in the first year and few months. Merle came down with um, cancer. He had smoked from when he was a young teenager. He was in his 40s when I was working with him in discipleship. And uh, we did the Z lesson on his deathbed. Z lesson is Zion, our heavenly home. So he's laying there on the bed and he's got this respirator on. And he's talking and this bag is going in and out as he's trying to breathe. And, and we're talking and he's laying there and he, he looks up at me and he says, he's talking with the respirator on. He says, Pastor Elstock, I love you. I said, I love you too, Merle. You're going to go be with the Lord. You're going to get there just a little ahead of me. I'm coming. And we're going to spend forever together with the Lord in heaven. And, and Merle died. And when it was over with, and he was gone, and I'm reflecting on the last year and some months of my life, I thought, I needed him. God gave me the guy that I needed. Because everything we covered in Scripture, he ran with it. And if it would have just bombed out, I'd probably been back in my office saying, well, that didn't work. I wonder what this, how does discipleship work? I would have been double, second guessing myself. But God gave me the right guy to encourage me to keep going. There's this tremendous growth that took place. And now, he would have grown some anyway, but in a year's time, he would not have grown like he grew. He grew because somebody was taking an interest in him and he had a resource person and an accountability partner that he could be open with in communication and that was a friend and it helped him tremendously. <clears throat> Your ministry as a discipler. You are going to be, when you disciple, you're going to be a model. That's your fill-in. You're a model. Paul said... Be a followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Model what you're asking them to do. And here's some of the things that you would model. A daily quiet time is having your daily devotions and prayer and scripture memory and outreach, trying to influence unbelievers around you and the fruits of the spirit in your life. Now, listen, folks, none of us are super Christians. None of us. So when I look at a list like that, I think, oh, there's sometimes that I miss my daily devotions and there's sometimes I miss my prayer. And, you know, there's, I go through periods of time where I'm not memorizing scripture. We're not asking for super, super Christians. We're asking for growing Christians that are seeking to follow God. And these are some of the elements of their life. They are. You're a model for your Timothy. You're a molder. You mold your Timothy. In these disciplines, you mold them. I want, to see, I want you to listen to a couple of testimonies. 
This is uh, what you're going to hear on this MP3 is Peggy Joyner, one of the ladies in our church that has for many years been involved in discipling others. So let's have uh, the first run of Peggy. When our church started a discipleship program and when I thought I would try discipling a new Christian, I was praying that God would give me the right words to say and to be a blessing to that person. I knew it would be a blessing to me, but I didn't realize just how much. My first Timothy was a lady with a strong Catholic background. It was enlightening to me to work with her because being raised as a Baptist, a lot of the things that I knew and heard my whole life was all new to her. I found I had taken some things for granted and realized a new Christian didn't know these simple truths. What a joy it was to see her light up when these things were explained to her about God's truths and living with the Holy Spirit to guide us in every situation in life. Where we can go in the Bible to find the answers to any problems we may be facing and to watch her slowly change the way she lived her life, how she raised her children and wanted to serve the Lord and grow in the Lord. I saw her heart turn away from being hard to a heart full of joy and a tender love for others and a desire to tell others around her about what Christ had done for her. Our church reached out to her when one of her children was born with a heart problem. I was able to minister to her during this time, but she handled things with Christ in her heart, and you could see how she glorified the Lord through the whole ordeal. This lady is now very active in our church. She ministers to so many people in so many different ways, through our mom's ministry, our nursery, our school, and she's always willing to lend a helping hand. I thank the Lord for the opportunity to have been a part of her learning and growing in the Lord. I think she was probably more of a blessing to me than I was to her. We're going to listen now to Pat Webster. Hello, my name is Pat. I'm a new Christian. I came to know the Lord through Christian radio, four hours a day while commuting to a new job in the city. Within six months, my desire for spiritual growth led me to a Bible-based church. If the doors were open, I was there. I even began reading the Bible on a daily basis. But as my questions and desire to understand the word of the Lord grew, I turned to the discipleship program, Christian Mentoring from A to Z. Discipleship brought focus to my study of the word. My mentor and I are meeting weekly. We began at A, the assurance of my salvation, and just completed V, the victorious Christian life. If you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, don't overlook the spiritual needs of the new Christian. The interactive, one-on-one format of the discipleship program is the best way to provide focus to a new Christian, answers to their questions, and give them an opportunity to see firsthand how the Christian mentor applies the word in his or her life. Christian mentoring from A to Z has been a blessing to me. I didn't ask any of the people that did these. I didn't ask them, what what are you going to say? I didn't tell them what to say. I just asked them, speak about the discipleship program and what it's meant to you. And then they gave their, they wrote their testimony and we recorded it. Now, folks, I would love to say that everybody you disciple will be, it'll turn out fantastic. 
everyone. But that isn't the way it works. Many of them will turn out wonderful. But there will be some that don't. And we've had uh, people drop out. I mentioned last night, Susan and I had a couple. She was discipling the lady at our house. I was discipling the man at his house. And we went all the way to the S lesson. We spent a lot of time with them. And they not only dropped out of discipleship, they dropped out of the church. Those things happen. Paul said, Demas hath forsaken me. He also said, this thou knowest that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me. Of Jesus in Matthew 26, all the disciples forsook him and fled. John Mark left Paul in Acts chapter 13. In 1 John chapter 2, they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest they were not all of us. People fall away. It's, that's just life. That's, that happens. Don't quit even if your Timothy quits. You will have Timothys that won't quit. They will run and go all the way and they will love it and appreciate it. Many will take that journey with you. <clears throat> uh, yesterday also uh, made the point that we give out our lessons one at a time. If you saw our discipleship book, which is out there on the table, it, you know, it looks pretty thick. Uh, but that's also because there's dividers, tabs in there. It makes it look thick. Uh, but if you give a, a Timothy a big notebook like that, that's, that's insurmountable in, in some people's minds. But you give them one little lesson, a few pages, ten pages, ten sheets of paper, anybody can do a lesson. It's an obtainable goal. And I remember when Don Clevenger Sr., who uh, was a heavy equipment operator, went through the A to Z. He made it all the way to the very end. Now, this was a guy in his probably his late 60s. When he finished it, he wept. Early man, he wept. Here's why he wept. Because when he was in high school and, and graduating or leaving high school, had a teacher told him, you're dumb and you'll never do anything with your life. Now, whether the teacher really said that or not, I don't know. But that's what he believed, that a teacher told him, you are dumb. You will never do anything with your life. And so from the time he got out of high school till he was in his 60s, he never read one book, not one. And when he did the A to Z and he got all the way to the end of it, he was so elated. And he said, I did it. I did the whole thing. I read the whole thing. It's the first thing I've read since I was in high school. And he was so excited. You will, be, you will have people to go the, the mileage with you. And it will mean much to them when they do that. When and where to meet. Let's wrap this up here fairly quickly. When and where to meet. When. Whatever works in your schedule. That's what we tell the people. Just don't do it during a church service. At least a Sunday morning, Sunday night. Where. Consider these possibilities. A restaurant. Their home, your home. The church building. But I would highly recommend the restaurant. And here's why. When you disciple at a restaurant, you've got a whole restaurant of people that see it. And even though you're sitting at a table in a private conversation or a booth in a private conversation, people around you will hear and, or people will see. When, when your Bible is out and your Timothy's Bible is out and you're talking about the Bible and people are 
a few tables away or a couple booths away and they're looking and they see what's happening over there. I can't tell you how many times people have gotten up and on their way out of the restaurant, they stop by our table. What are you doing? And we tell them what we're doing. That is wonderful. I wish my church did that. Or they, they see us pray and they stop and they say, I saw you pray before you ate. That encouraged my heart. It is regular that people respond when Christian people are just being Christian people in the restaurant. Especially now in this COVID world, in this time when our country is so agitated, people are looking for answers. And when they see Christians being Christians, it means something to them. I I would highly recommend a restaurant. I was supposed to have somebody in church on Easter Sunday, and they might have been there, but it was a waitress at a restaurant, and she wasn't even our waitress. She just kept walking by our table and catching a few words as she walked by. And when we were done and leaving, she came and got us and and wanted to talk to us, tell us a little bit about her struggles in life. We talked to her about church. She said, I will be there on Easter Sunday. Now, we had 900 people Easter Sunday. It was a lot of people, a lot more than we've had in a long time. And uh, she might have been there. I don't know. Sample. Discipleship session. What do you do? What do you do when you sit down with discipleship? Number one, chat, chat, talk. That's how you develop relationship. You talk to your Timothy to find out what's going on in his or her life. How's things at work? How's things at school? How's the kids doing? What you just talk and get to know them, answer their questions. And when the relationship gels, they will ask. Ask for an update regarding prayer requests. And it's often that a Timothy will say, will you pray for my... And then they'll give you a prayer request. And the next time you're together, how's it going with... And let them know, you've been praying for the need that they have. Open your spiritual journal and share something that God has taught you during your devotions. We, en- we encourage our disciples to follow the D lesson on digging in the Word and have a spiritual journal, and it doesn't have to be sophisticated. It could just be a spiral-bound notebook where you jot down something that you learned that day in your, in your devotions. And then when you share that with your Timothy, what that says to the Timothy is, we're supposed to get something out of the Bible when we read the Bible. It's supposed to be helpful to us. We share from our spiritual journal. After they've learned how to use the spiritual journal, ask them to share with you one of their entries. And they start out by saying this. I I don't know if this is right, but I wrote down in my spiritual journal and they'll tell me what they wrote and whether it's right or not. I'm not there to correct them. I'm going to pat them on the back for the effort that they're making to read the Bible and write something down. Now, if it's really heretical, I will gently provide some direction for that. Uh, Let's go to seven. After Timothy's been instructed on how to hand out a gospel tract, and we demonstrated that last night. Ask them how it went when they handed the tract out. Review the lesson. Look at, okay, eight, eight, review the lesson. Now you're going to get to the lesson. The Timothy believes that the lesson is everything. That's what they believe. The lesson is the most important thing. We teach our disciples that the lesson is not the important thing. The relationship is the important thing. And you've got all these preliminaries, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, before you get to eight, which is review the lesson. So don't eliminate one through seven and just sit down and get to the lesson. 
Look at what not to do. Number one, don't eliminate the preliminaries. Don't just jump into the lesson. You have to spend time talking and sharing. And that's where you're really going to help them grow. Now, I'm going to skip down to number five. Don't minimize your Timothy's efforts or make light of his or her discoveries in the Bible. They will they will share with you something they have learned in the Bible. And they might and it's going to be it's going to be something that you learned a long time ago. They might say like something like this. Did you ever see John 3.16 in the Bible? I read this, and they're going to be excited about John 3.16. And you can say, I memorized that when I was seven years old. I did. And you can give the history of you and John 3. But you don't want to do that with your Timothy. If they're excited about John 3.16 because they just learned that, and they say, have you ever read John 3.16? Just look at them and say, what's it say? And let them tell you. Let them enter into their discovery and their enjoyment and their excitement as they're learning these simple things in the Christian life. Be a part of it and and encourage them along the way. This relationship can be life changing for you. It will be life changing for them. Please, please, please see yourself as a link in a chain and invest in people, invest in people. They need that. If they don't have someone invested in them, how are they ever going to learn? They will learn a little bit from the preaching and a little bit from the teaching. But when they have a personal resource, a person that has vested interest in them, they're going to grow. It's going to help them tremendously. And you can be that person for somebody. God bless you.